Get 0% interest for 48 months on any replacement project right now at Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. Our experts complete the installation with no hassle or mess, leaving only perfect results. Schedule your free consultation now at PellaWI.com. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at The Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Come join the conversation on the WTMJ Talk and Text Line at 855-616-1620. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the show, World Series in Baseball. If anybody's still paying attention, kicks off tonight, Houston and Philadelphia I uh, my, my my crystal ball with picking certain baseball games has kind of gone out the window. I thought for the longest time the Brewers still might have made the playoffs, um, but I, it sure looks like a mismatch. The Houston team is just awesome. You know, dispatched the New York Yankees, which are a pretty good team, in four straight games. The Phillies have been playing well lately, but my sense is if I was a betting guy, and oh yeah, I am a betting guy, um, I, I think I think I'd be putting the money on on Houston. But that's why they end up playing the games. All right. I want to sort of back into the topic that we're going to start off on today's program. First of all, you heard Mike telling you a little bit about the, this this latest, just horrific, you know, murder that, that happened again in Milwaukee. I'm looking at the homicide statistics. So far this year, the Milwaukee police are reporting 186 homicides. Um, the all-time record is 193. And, of course, we're not through October. We are going to unfortunately blow through that. And that 196, I think, is low. I don't think it's including some of the more recent ones. But here's the story. It's just absolutely chilling. And it's it's the randomness of the these crimes that, that's really scary. Milwaukee man, his name is Rodney Surprise, 46 years old, beaten to death beaten to death, and also had his car stolen on the city's south side Tuesday night. Police are searching for the killers. It happened near 5th Place and Chase Avenue. Um, They show he was hit by suspects around 11.30 p.m., and the suspects took his car. So here's the deal. Apparently, he was leaving a gas station when he was attacked. So this was one of these violent carjackings that out there. He was beaten um, beaten badly enough that he had brain damage. Doctors could not stop the bleeding, and so you know he ended up dying. Uh, the car, I think they found the car later on, I believe, with the uh, wheels missing or something like that. But this is another one of his examples. All, all the guy did was stop to get gas. He's carjacked, and now he's dead. And I understand that there's some people out there who say, well, I just wish you wouldn't talk about, you know, all this violence that goes on in Milwaukee and all. Well, how can you not talk about this violence that goes on in the city of Milwaukee? Because it's now getting to the point where, okay, you stop to put gasoline in your car and you take your life into your own hands. Because you never know when some of these violent thugs, and again, if, if, and I say if, if they're able to solve this murder— and you find the people who did this, you know darn well that they're going to be people with lengthy criminal records. They're going to be people who are probably on some form of probation or maybe parole or whatever, people who probably should have been in prison, but because they're not, they're out there murdering some 46-year-old guy. And, I mean, maybe it's the first time, like I say, maybe this is this the day that these people wake up and decide, hey, let's go out and beat somebody to death and steal their car. But maybe it's the first time that they've, you know, ever considered criminal activity. But we all know better than that. But I, I want to talk to you about a tale of two stories. Here, here's the first one, and this is the way it's reported on Fox 6. Milwaukee 
16-year-old shot 15-year-old over hoodie. All right. A beef over a stolen hoodie led to an attempted intentional homicide charge against a Milwaukee 16-year-old. Prosecutors say the teenager, a Milwaukee gang member, shot a 15-year-old boy, a member of a different Milwaukee gang, after accusing him of stealing property, including a hoodie. The shooting happened August 20th at a gas station near 37th and North. According to the criminal complaint, now follow me with this, surveillance showed a Nissan with heavily tinted windows pulling into the gas station lot. Prosecutors say Branquin Brown got out of, got out of the passenger seat carrying a firearm, firing it once or twice before running back to the car. So this is the 16-year-old. The 15-year-old shooting victim suffered a gunshot wound to the head and was rushed to Children's. A witness who identified as a member of the DTE, the Downtown Entertainment Gang, a branch of the Kia Boys, told investigators that DTE, that's the gang, was beefing with a murder, M-U-R-D-A, murder gang member over BAPE hoodies. The witness said he was the one who took the hoodie that was at the center of the dispute. He believed he was the target of the shooting. Brown, that's the 16-year-old, was arrested for several other offenses, and the complaint says he told investigators he was responsible for the gas station shooting. He said the day before the shooting, Meech... And another person robbed him of the hoodie, some jogging pants, some Jordan shoes, and an iPhone Plus. He said when he saw Meech the next day at the gas station, he fired three to four times. He then went home and later sold the gun. The complaint notes Brown was questioned by investigators after being in a stolen blue Hyundai Elantra in a separate case. He said he couldn't remember because he had been in approximately 15 stolen vehicles since 2021. He said he couldn't remember the exact car because he had been in approximately 15 stolen vehicles since 2021. All right. Is it unfair to say that this this story right here is just a microcosm of everything that is wrong in the city of Milwaukee. You have 15 and 16-year-olds who are members of, of rival gangs. They are out there committing so many crimes that they can't even keep track of them. Yeah, I, I, just, I don't remember this stolen car because I've been in so many stolen cars over the last year and a half that I, it's impossible to keep track. You know, and, and, I mean, I appreciate the guy's honesty. He's probably being completely candid. So now you've got the, the rival gangs, and these, these are 15- and 16-year-old kids, the rival gangs that are, you know, robbing each other, and in addition to, like, stealing the cars from honest, law-abiding people— and one guy, he gets robbed, so he gets mad. So his idea is, okay, I'm going to take my gun and I'm going to pull up at a public gas station and I'm going to fire indiscriminately at these other people and we're going to leave one of these kids for dead. And there's a 15 and 16 years old. Now, I bring this up because, as is clearly evidenced, the, the 16-year-old who's now going to be looking at a long time in prison for the shooting, he, he's going to be tried as an adult, all those different things. But but he's been committing crimes for God knows how long. 
I mean, he, he, by his own admission, has been involved in stealing cars and all this other stuff, this gang activity, um, for at least the last year or two, which puts him, what, 14 years old when he started this, and he has not been held accountable at all. There, if there's been prosecutions, he hasn't been incarcerated. Its general sense is it is wild in the streets, right? We've let this go. We continue to turn a blind eye to it. We let these punks go out and terrorize honest, law-abiding citizens and shoot and kill each other. And what happens, unfortunately, is at least a portion of the time that you get, again, the honest, law-abiding citizen that gets trapped in the crossfire. But whether it's this, whether it's the 12-year-old girl that got shot by the the 17-year-old boy because his mother had the audacity to look at them wrong, regardless of why that is, you get an example of a justice system that has completely and totally allowed people to run wild in the streets doing nothing to stop the behavior until finally it gets so bad that somebody is either dead or, you know, shot in the head in an effort in an effort to try to kill him but just went a little bit wrong. So we've let this go. We turn a blind eye to all this other stuff. But now there's a different story that's out there. It's something that the DA's office is deciding to try to crack down on. And that's where I want to start our conversation. I will explain and we will discuss in just a moment. Okay, so you've got the you've got the 16 year old who's been part of this gang who has been committing crimes by his own admission for a, at least the last two years. Yeah, I've been in so many stolen cars since 2001. I can't, I can't, I don't even remember. I don't remember this particular one because we've been stealing so many. And and if he's been caught, he hasn't been held accountable. And finally, he's out on the street and he pulls out a gun and he ends up shooting some 15-year-old in the face because they stole his hoodie. And, and, and now we're finally cracking down on it. But of course, my question is, why weren't we spending resources trying to crack down on this Oh, maybe after he stole his first or his second car, which brings me to the story of apparently what we are cracking down on. Here is the follow up on something we talked about a couple weeks ago. And this is the way the Journal Sentinel reports it. White man seen in viral video detaining black man by holding his neck has been charged with disorderly conduct. I will read you the story. The white man caught on a viral video detaining a black man by holding his neck earlier this month has been charged with a misdemeanor charge of disorderly conduct, the DA's office announced Thursday. The video received thousands of views on social media as community activists said it was an instance of racism. Robert Waljakowski, 62, told police he saw people stealing bikes out of his neighbor's yard in the 2100 block of South 25th Street on October 10th around 4.40 p.m., Walczakowski then confronted the men and detained a 24-year-old black man by placing his hand around his neck. D'Angelo Wright recorded part of the incident after noticing Walczakowski detaining the 24-year-old man while driving by. Wright told Walczakowski to let go of the man before calling police as well. Okay, so the guy, this is the 62-year-old man, he sees people stealing bikes out of his neighbor's yard. He grabs the one kid and, and holds him while he's calling the cops. Somebody comes along, sees him holding the guy, and then calls the cops themselves. Wojciechowski eventually let the 24-year-old man go, and the 24-year-old man left the scene before officers could arrive. According to the criminal complaint, an officer told Wojciechowski that he should not have detained a man like that and that he could face charges. Two days after the incident, the 24-year-old man's mother, this is the guy who was detained, called police 
to turn over two bikes to the Milwaukee Police Department that, that did not belong to her or anyone in the family. Okay, so let's just stop there. Somebody associated with this 24-year-old guy was obviously was stealing bikes. Okay, so th- this is it. So the guy comes out. He sees this crime presumably in progress, and he grabs the one guy. All right. The woman, this would be the man's mother, told police that she thought the bikes might be stolen and that her son, the 24-year-old man, possibly had something to do with it. The officers took the bikes and placed them in inventory. According to the criminal complaint, the 24-year-old man has disabilities and can be hard to understand at times, but an officer said he stated words to the effect of his cousins having something to do with the bikes. The 24-year-old man's mother told officers her son was not injured in the incident, nor did he seek medical treatment. If convicted, Waldrakowski could be fined up to $1,000 or jailed for a short period of time. So let us review the bidding. Now, this is in a context where you have young criminals that are running the streets of Milwaukee, stealing cars with impunity. Um, oh, there have been so many stolen cars. I, I don't know. And, and, and nothing happens to them. So here you have a deal. You've got a guy in this neighborhood. He sees some people stealing bikes out of his neighbor's yard. He, he tries to intervene. He grabs one of the people who is with the group. And he temporarily detains him, puts his hand around the kid's neck. We, we've seen the video that he, and I'm saying kid, it's a 24 year old guy, and, and holds him while he is calling the police. All right. And then somebody else sees this and calls the police as well. The person who was detained, the 24 year old person, rides off. He is not injured, doesn't seek medical treatment at all. And we subsequently learn that there's stolen bikes that end up in the person's home. Now, again, I don't know that the 24-year-old was responsible for it, but the mother says, well, it could be his cousins that were there. So clearly the guy is on the scene while this crime is being committed. The neighbor detains him and, and, and holds him. Now, I think you can make an argument, I guess, that he shouldn't have gotten involved, that he should have just watched the theft and, and let him go. But he intervenes. He holds the guy. He detains him. He puts his hand around his throat. There is no injury. This is not like it's a situation of medical treatment. This isn't a, a George Floyd sort of choking thing. And ultimately lets the guy go, and the guy rides off. Now he is being charged by the district attorney's office. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the WTMJ talk and text line. Now, I understand because the the 62-year-old man is white and the 24-year-old guy is black that this is being portrayed as this sort of racial issue that's out there. My question is, given everything that is going on in Milwaukee, I mean, seriously, and given the fact that we turn a blind eye to so much real crime that is out there, what do we gain by prosecuting this 62-year-old man for disorderly conduct, for presumably seeing a crime in progress, and at least trying to detain temporarily, while he's calling the cops, one of the people who he feels, correctly or incorrectly, may have been involved in this theft? Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the WTMJ talk and text line. What do you accomplish by bringing charges in this case other than, I understand there's community activists there who want to see this as a racial sort of thing. But, but beyond that, I mean, what, what is the guy supposed to do? Or more importantly, is this the type of thing that deserves a criminal charge to be brought? Or is the better course of action simply to say, 
look, sir, we understand why you were doing this. We understand you're frustrated with crime. We're going to try to get to the bottom of this. You shouldn't have detained him. You go home, promise not to do it again. He wasn't injured. Or do you bring him into court? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. 855-616-1620. Let's start with Mike in Brown Deer. Hi, Mike. How you doing, Jess? Good. Uh, thanks for uh, taking my call. I listen to you guys uh, every day. Sure. What do you um, think? Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, I kind of I don't I don't understand how uh, the issues are uh, combined. I think they're completely separate issues. I think uh, uh, Milwaukee is pretty numb to the stolen car thing. Uh, we we hear it all the time. We know it's an issue that needs to be handled. Uh, that was wrong. Everything that w- that happened with that situation was completely wrong. And the uh, the situation with the older guy, mm-hmm. uh, I think no one should just put their hands on someone in someone's neck, mm-hmm. uh, black or white. Uh, I just think that's wrong to do that. Uh, I know he he had good intentions. I just don't think that's the right thing to do. Well, Mike, I, I don't disagree I that I don't disagree that the guy was wrong. But I guess my point is he's now been charged criminally. The 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 twenty four year old man that was detained briefly was not injured. No no hospitalization. You know, rode off. And it does turn out, it is, at least the inference is that some of the people that he was involved with were involved in stealing the the bikes. He wasn't hurt. What do you gain by charging him criminally? Don't you just say, hey, don't do this again? I mean, are we really going to charge in the city of Milwaukee where people steal cars, assault people on a daily basis, and they're let go? We're going to charge this guy because he, he detained somebody for a few seconds and with no injury? I guess that's my point here. To me, this is a no harm, no foul thing, except you have some people who are trying to make it a racial thing and demanding charges. Well, okay, let's let's charge everybody then. But the DA's office doesn't do that. Okay, thanks for calling. That's my response to that. I mean, no, do I think the 62 year old guy was right in in detaining this this 24 year old man? No, I don't. I, I don't. I think he was wrong in in doing that. But. But this is this is to me it's the ultimate no harm no foul situation that is going on, and, and yet he's being charged. And on a daily basis, you've got people that are doing a lot worse stuff, and it is ignored. But because we want to racialize this, this man is now being charged with disorderly conduct. Well, my, my goodness, I can give you all sorts of examples where stuff like this happens on a regular sort of basis. Doesn't make it right, but you look and you say, okay, was anybody hurt here? No, nobody was hurt. And there's a lot less compelling situations. He was trying to detain somebody because he saw what he thought was a crime in progress. And he was trying to hold one of the people who he thought might be involved in this until the cops arrived. We continue the conversation. 855-616-1620 is the number. Jeff, when I was a kid growing up in the 80s, my dad caught two kids who were stealing bikes out of our backyard. He held them. The police came, handcuffed the juveniles, and took them away. End of story. Well, it's a different world out there. We continue our conversation in just a moment. So think about what the lesson that John Chisholm and a DA's office that that does not prosecute and does not take seriously a whole wide variety of crimes, this is what they are, are saying. So you've got the guy who witnesses a crime being committed, witnesses people stealing bikes out of his neighbor's yard. 
intervenes, grabs one of the, the people who he believes is associated with it. And we now know from the information in the criminal complaint that even if this 24-year-old guy wasn't the one stealing bikes, the stolen bikes end up in his house. Oh, okay, so he, he holds them. He doesn't throw them on the ground. This isn't George Floyd. There's no injuries at all. The 24-year-old man is ultimately released and, and rides off and goes home. No injuries, no hospitalization. Maybe a different story if that changes. But so what and now he's the one that is being charged by John Chisholm's district attorney's office. So what is the message, seriously, that this sends? You're, you're in your neighborhood. You – and I understand this is bicycles, but let's – I mean, I don't know if there's any sort of logical uh, thing. You, you walk out and you see three guys trying to steal your neighbor's car out of your neighbor's uh, driveway. You, you see the crime in progress. You decide to intervene. You grab one of the three people who you believe to be involved in this, and you hold them while you're calling the police. You are now going to be the one that gets charged by John Chisholm's district attorney's office? How nuts is that? Now, look, can we say, if you if you want to argue, should the guy have detained the 24-year-old man? I, all right. Reasonable people can disagree about that. All right. But but that's not the decision. It seems to me any reasonable prosecutor who wasn't trying to appease a, a certain segment of the community who wants to try to racialize this incident would have simply said to the guy, look, this we understand what you were doing. We understand that you were trying to help us solve a crime that was in progress. You shouldn't have done it. Next time, just take a picture and, and then you know let us deal with it, which means uh, bike theft in the city of Milwaukee means we're not going to do anything about it. But but you shouldn't have intervened. Okay, I understand. You can say that. You can make that argument. But to charge and just go home, don't do it again. No harm, no foul. They've charged him with a crime, for goodness sakes. So I don't know what this says to citizens. It not only says if you see something here, just just stand back. Don't even think of intervening because we will make you the criminal. How nuts is that? Tom in New London. Tom, you're on WTMJ. Yeah. Hey, uh, I just have to make this kind of fast. First of all, who initiated the presentation of that case to the district attorney? Who signed it? Who was the district attorney that issued issued the the, uh, complaint? Who signed it? And how will the police officers get people to be witnesses if they have the the fear of being charged in the district attorney's office? something. Well, that I think that I mean, I, I got, yeah, no, I think I'm Tom. I, I, I look, I, I don't know. I don't know which assistant district attorney signed the complaint, but this is obviously look, let's understand what's going on here. This there were community activists who tried to racialize this. And so there were protests. You've got a district attorney's office that's going to bend over backwards in. OK, well, we don't we don't want to be accused of like any of this racial sort of stuff at all. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to try to appease you know certain segments of the community by bringing these criminal charges. You can argue whether the guy was right or not. All right. But that's he he didn't hurt anybody. He was trying to help. He thought he caught somebody who was involved, a party and a party uh, to what is this ongoing crime. So now the message the DA's office says is if you try to intervene, if you try to stop these crimes, be careful. You might be the one that gets charged. And how far how far do we carry this? If you see an active carjacking, for example, that's going on and you now intervene to try try to stop that and maybe save somebody's life? Are you now going to be charged if you grab and hold one of the people? Now, I understand this was a theft of bikes. It wasn't, you know, carjacking. But 
But, I mean, where is the line now? If you get certain community groups that decide to protest and want to try to racialize this, is is this now going to be, okay, well, you, you better not intervene. Let's let just let the criminals get away. And again, I think you can argue that the guy was wrong in, in holding him, trying to the 24-year-old man trying to wait for the police. I, I'm not going to defend that, but to charge him criminally is to do nothing but capitulate to some loud voices out there that were trying to make this incident, I think, a lot more than it was. It's a guy who's grabbing somebody who he believes is part of this ongoing crime that he has just witnessed. Let's talk to—let's um, see. We've got Jim in West Dallas. Jim, you're on WTMJ. I don't know about a ticket, but maybe a warning or yeah. something. I, I don't know that I would um, you know, do— I would in, intervene anyway, given the situation with um, yeah. knives and guns and, and criminals beating old people up. I'm 68 years old and, and everything. But the thing is, is that I'm thinking about is like the Grand Torino movie, you know, um, where, you know, people are seeing these things and, um, and then they're acting in, in foolish ways. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I know, remember a couple of years ago, there was that old guy who was being harassed by these kids. And all of a sudden he comes to the door with a, with a gun and he shoots somebody. And now the old guy is in, in prison and the, the young guy is dead. Yeah. You know, so maybe what happens if, you know, this, um, this older guy grabs that younger guy and by the neck and all of a sudden, I- something happens, you know. I know. Well, Jim, look, thanks, Nicole. Look, I I understand. Look, you can play what ifs all along. Now, look, if you change the facts, the guy grabs the the 62-year-old man, grabs the younger kid, and instead of detaining him, he he had his hand around his throat. I saw the video. I understand. He was holding him while he's calling the cops, so he's going nowhere. If instead you change the facts, he pulls him off the bike, he slams him onto the ground, he bangs his head against the sidewalk a couple times, knocks him unconscious— puts his, his foot or his knee on the back of the guy's neck. Okay, that, that's a different story. I, I understand. You've got to look at these individually. All I'm saying is I, I think most of us that are hearing the story think, wait a second, you, you come out, you see a, a crime in progress. Now, admittedly, a minor crime, but a crime in progress. You see at least one of the people that you think are involved in this. You grab them to hold them for the police, and now you're the one who's being charged with the crime. That's... It's it's almost like we have gone through the looking glass here, and I mean I think it is fair to question. All right, would if this were not for the community activists that out there, if it was not for trying to racialize this, would the DA's office have portrayed have occurred and done the the same sort of thing? And the way this was being presented originally is the 24 year old man had nothing to do with, with anything that was involved here. Well, we look. I'm not saying the guy was stealing the bikes himself, but we know that. Stolen bikes ended up in, in his in his house. You know when the police went there, when the mother called a couple days later. This should have been a no harm, no foul thing. The police should have said, "Okay, look, sir. You know, next time, j- just call us, take pictures. We'll we'll do the investigation because you know bad things can happen when you get involved. Because it, this guy could the the person you detained could have easily had a gun or a knife or whatever. You know, you could find yourself in in the morgue. You know, so th- this is not smart to do. We appreciate what you're trying to do, and no harm, no foul. Don't do it again. But instead, in the city of Milwaukee. 
where you have crime that is running rampant, real crime, auto thefts and carjackings, and we look the other way on a regular basis when stuff like this occurs, 62-year-old guy who detains somebody whose relatives, friends, whatever, are apparently in the process of stealing bikes, he's the one that gets charged. John Chisholm once again takes us through the looking glass. And I don't know how this all ends up. I don't know if he gets convicted. You know, technically, do you say, Jeff, do you think this was like disorderly conduct? Well, okay, maybe, but this is one of these things. They look the other way on so many crimes, real crimes, that we're going to try to make an example of this man? Give me a break. Okay, we do not go gently into the good weekend on the Wagner program. Some people, what? I, I can't believe how you, you know, what, what you should offer a dissenting opinion. No, I don't think many people have dissenting opinions on that particular story. It's just, it is this classic example of, of how just screwed up our system is that you, I mean, just think about that. Imagine, I mean, maybe I just go back to how I was growing up, but I'm just trying to imagine if my father walked out one night, just like our texter said, and saw people across the street, a bunch of young people or whatever, that were stealing something from our, our neighbor's yard, whatever, trying to steal the car, steal bikes, you know, whatever it is. I, I have no doubt that he would have tried to maybe intervene. You're calling the police. You know, you're trying to, to stop this crime while it's happening. But now you do that, and if you run afoul of some of the, the woke prosecutors in this town, you're the one that ends up being the criminal. And I think you can say that even if you don't think that the man should have necessarily detained the guy. Maybe he should have just, I don't know, taken pictures and then just provided the information. But, of course, if you do that, you know that the police are never going to do anything about it. But by getting involved, you now become the one who ends up being charged. Again, talk about going through the looking glass. All right. In that same vein, I, I've been amused this election season because there, there, is, there is no middle ground. And when, whenever you talk about, for example, Tim Michaels and Ron Johnson, there are, there are people, particularly on the left, who are just so blinded by their, their hatred that they just can't – they just – it doesn't matter whether the point you're raising is correct or not. It doesn't matter. I, it's, it's, I hate that Tim Michaels or I, or I hate that, that Ron Johnson. And some of those people are in the, the mainstream media. I just shake my head at some of these stories that are out there and some of the efforts that's going on in the media to – try to manufacture stories that people are going to be outraged about. And it's it's now you see more of it directed at Michaels because I, I think, for example, the, the statewide newspaper, you know, Gannett, they, they were all in and trying to defeat Ron Johnson. And at least I think most of the smart money is saying that that's not going to happen because Mandela Barnes is such a deeply flawed candidate. But, but here's the latest Ron Johnson attack piece. All right. As voters have become—this is the story in the paper—as voters have already begun streaming to the polls, Republican U.S. Senator Ron Johnson this week raised doubts about the early in-person absentee voting in Milwaukee and suggested his supporters in the city hold off from casting their ballots until Election Day. But Johnson, who faces Democratic Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, encouraged Republicans to vote earlier in other areas of the state— I would recommend early voting if you have a Republican election clerk, Johnson said during a town hall meeting on Monday. I'm not sure I would recommend a Republican go vote in Milwaukee. I don't know about the bipartisan observation of those early votes. It might be possible. He's making a joke. 
He's, hey, go out and vote. Unless you're in Milwaukee, then you might want to think about it. Okay, we've had all these consternations and these issues with elections and stuff. He's making a joke. Now, you can argue that it might not be a funny joke or whatever, but he's in front of a friendly audience. He's kidding around about, ah, you know what goes on in Milwaukee. All right. Well, and their spokespeople say when they get questioned about it, I'm sure they're shaking their heads saying, oh, for God's sake. And they say, obviously, the senator meant that as a tongue-in-cheek comment. All right. But of course, this is these are these evil Republicans and nothing can be tongue in cheek. A spokesman for Milwaukee Mayor Cavalier Johnson pushed back at the senator's comments. Needless to say, he was trying to be funny. Milwaukee welcomes election observers. People will see firsthand that elections here are conducted with the highest integrity, Jeff Fleming said in a statement. Innuendos and baseless allegations of election impropriety undermine the public's confidence in our elections. They harm the most important foundation of our democracy. Let's stick to the facts. There is no basis to suggest impropriety by Milwaukee's election officials. Here's my message to Jeff. Lighten up, Francis. He's making a joke. But, of course, you know, this— this is when it's a Republican, you, you can't say that. There, there's no sense. Of, there's no sense of humor. It's all. Oh, he must be questioning, you know, the integrity. This is just terrible. We have all these people. And during it, he's being funny. He's talking in Waukesha and he's saying, hey, look, you know, go out. I, I want you to vote early unless you're in Milwaukee. Then you might want to think about it. He's being funny. Now, you can argue it's not funny. Okay, that, that's that's fine. People have different senses of humor. But this ends up being another one of these, like, Ron Johnson hit pieces. Oh, let's go out. We're going to get comments from the mayor. We're going to get comments from the, you know, mayor's the, the mayor's spokesperson and things like that. Now, of course, this is the, the same Milwaukee mayor who was touting, you know, the city of Milwaukee partnering with one of these Democrat activist groups to try to juice turnout. Um, until all of a sudden they had to start backing off on that. But I guess the the bottom line of this is it's gotten to, again, be the silly season where Johnson, he's in front of presumably a friendly audience in Waukesha or whatever. He's making some references. He's trying to be funny. Well, this is what you do. Oh, this is just so terrible. And then this turns into a 40-paragraph story in the local newspaper about there's Johnson. He's this election denier again. It, it's almost it want to makes your head your head explode. And my wife said to me this morning, as a matter of fact, as we were having breakfast and watching the, the string of of ads on both sides, she said, my God, when is this thing going to be over? And I said, well, probably not till a week from Tuesday and, and maybe even then, because you have all this stuff and you have people with agendas who want to decide to take stuff out of context. And this is the latest example. And of course, if it's Ron Johnson, because there's all these haters out there, well, that just feeds into that. And if it's Tim Michaels, because there's all these haters out there, it feeds into that. And I think there's some frustration because, again, if you believe the polls, looks like Ron Johnson's going to win. Looks like the momentum in a very, very even race is with Tim Michaels. So I know there's people getting more and more frustrated, including some of the people who are in the media who don't want to see this happen. But at the same time, not everything is a media story. And just because somebody feeds it to somebody in the newspaper doesn't necessarily mean you've got to write the story, does it? Lighten up, Francis. Yeah, a great line from Sergeant Holka in Stripes. One of our texters says, well, 
Would, would you be saying the same thing if this was Tony Evers or Cavalier Johnson or Mandela Barnes that said it? No, I wouldn't because it wouldn't have been an issue. This, If any of them try to, in a joking reference, make reference to, I, I don't know, something in a joking reference, which is clearly what Johnson was doing, this would not be a story. Nobody would have ever thought about it. And if anybody decided to discuss it, it would be, oh, you Republicans, you conservatives, you have absolutely no sense of humor. He was clearly speaking tongue in cheek. I mean, my goodness, you, you can barely get coverage of Mandela Barnes when he talks about wanting to, you know, where's the shirt talking about how he wants to abolish ICE or the defund the police or any of that stuff. Those things don't get covered in the media. But Johnson kids around about saying, well, if you're early voting in Milwaukee, be careful. That's that what becomes a story. Hmm. All right. When we come back, they want twice as much money. I will explain. We will discuss. It's one of the more talkable conversations of the day. Stick around. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. All right, let us continue stirring the pot. If you have lived around here for at least a period of time, you will remember what became known as the Milwaukee County Pension Scandal. This is when the then-county board decided, with the blessing of the then-county executive, that they were going to revamp the the pension system. And and they they came up with this idea, and and the way it ended up working out, everybody said, oh, this is going to be revenue neutral. But what it has done is it's resulted with long-term county employees being able to retire, get a payout of in the neighborhood of a million dollars in some cases, and then still get full pensions. It was just, and of course, the, the story was the supervisors didn't know this was going to happen. They were misled by some of the people. The county executive, well, he ended up uh, resigning before he had to face a recall. But it, it's that pension scandal continues to haunt Milwaukee County 20 years later because it's all those added costs have essentially, you know, been one of the many things that is crippling the county moving forward. Well, after that, in in a moment of outrage, a lot of county supervisors got recalled, and there was an examination of what was going on. Back in the day, being a Milwaukee County supervisor, well, it was, was, let me put it like this, it was a sweet gig, because nobody knew exactly what they did. They really didn't do that much, but they were paid like $50,000-plus a year. This was, it was somehow viewed as a full-time job, even though it really wasn't a full-time job. And yet some of these elected officials, some of these people, candidly, this is, you know, 15 years ago, there's no way they could have made 50-some grand in, in real life. They, they, just, they just couldn't have. So this was one of these sweet gigs that you got into it. And then you, what you would do is you would try to find make-work stuff to, to expand, you know, your time. And there were some county supervisors who, you know, viewed it as what it really was, which was a part-time gig. And they, you know, they had their own businesses or they had their own jobs and things like that. But there were other people who just said, okay, well, this is, this is, this is my chance to make $50,000 a year, so that's what I'm going to do. Well, a number of years ago, um, the law changed and the county supervisor's gig in Milwaukee County became a, a part-time, part-time job. And so a true part-time job. So instead of making like 50-some thousand dollars a year, you make twenty around 24000 I think is, is what it is. And, you know, you have limited meetings and stuff, but it's, 
you don't live on that 24000 It's what it is. It's a citizen sort of thing. It is a part-time job. It's not intended to be a full-time job. And the idea is, hey, we're going to still have all sorts of people run for these offices because, you know, they've got civic duties or whatever, but it's not a job that is intended to be full-time. Which brings me to the Madison City Council. Here is the story in the State Journal. This is the headline that caught my attention. Madison City Council members propose more than doubling their pay to match job demands. Now, first of all, let me just, this whole concept, wouldn't it be nice if you got to decide that you wanted to double your pay? Hey, here's what I'm going to do. You know, you don't have to go into your boss and say, hey, I I want twice as much money. You just get to say, hey, I'm going to double it. Now, the way it works in Wisconsin is you can't, if you're an elected official, you can't increase your pay during your term. But what you can do is you can increase the pay and then run for reelection. And we all know the, the power of incumbency. So you can pretty much guarantee that you're going to get it. Well, anyhow, the Madison City Council Here's the deal. It's a part-time job. Right now, Madison City Council members make $14,904. Okay, so that's fifteen grand. They are proposing, and I hope you're sitting down, they are proposing raising their salary from $14,900 to $37,658. So... <laughs> In essence, they want to give themselves a $23,000 raise. Okay, so what is the justification for this? Well, they say, well, if you look at the, the hours that this, this job is supposed to be, it's supposed to be a part-time job, it's 20 hours a week, you know, that, that this $14,904, that, that translates to about 13 bucks an hour. Well, you can't live on $13 an hour. What we need to do is we need to raise it, and if we assume it's going to be 20 hours, we need to raise it to at least the equivalent of like 35 bucks an hour because you can't live on on $13 an hour. None of the other employees in Madison make it. So why should these elected officials, why should they make less per hour than, I don't know, the janitors? That's the argument. Our number is 855-616-1620, which is the WTMJ talk and text line. Now, my answer to this and any other elected official is, these are semi-volunteer positions. It is not intended as a full-time family of four supporting job. If you want that, well, then you should run for state representative or you should run for mayor. These are part-time jobs that are really looking for people who are willing to be volunteers in the community. The argument that a couple of these supervisors are making is that, well, you know, we, we need to pay a living wage. We need to open opportunities for more people. We need to make the council more equitable. In other words, the idea is, well, if we pay a little bit more, maybe we'll get more people to run. My argument would be that if, if that's the motivation for running, you don't want most of those people on the board anyways. And the idea that the taxpayers are going to shell out hundreds of thousands of dollars of more to, to pay for these part-time elected officials who make the decision as to whether they want to run or not, my response would be nuts. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the WTMJ talk and text line. I think you need to be going the other way. I think you need to be looking at a lot of these elected officials and these boards out there, which are essentially part-time boards. And I'm not saying they necessarily need to be volunteer exclusively. They, they give them, here you, you get about $15,000, which probably covers, I don't know, your meal expenses and things like, like that. 
But this idea that, here, we've got to turn these into, I don't know, family-sustaining jobs, or we have to view these the same way we view the minimum wage of somebody who's working full-time at this. No, no, these are volunteer positions. You shouldn't be in it for the money. And if you are, well, okay, there's no way that we can then pay you this. 855-616-1620. What do you think? Politicians want to raise the amount of money they get. To me, it's a non-starter. We discuss. A number of years ago, I had a, a friend. He was a lawyer at one of the big law firms in town, and he was on the school board in, in one of the for one of the communities. It wasn't Milwaukee. It was one of the, the surrounding communities. And the, the school board was going through a particularly contentious period of time, and there were various lawsuits that were being filed and things like that. And so my, my friend was being... He, he was named in all these different lawsuits. Now, he was named individually, and, and but really as a member of the school board. So, you know, it wasn't th- – th- these lawsuits had no merit, but th- they were for millions and millions of dollars. And every time he went to take a car loan or something like that, you know, one of the questions is they always ask, you know, do you have any pending lawsuits? He always had a list. One point in time, it was like $8 million in lawsuits against him. And I remember saying to him, I'm just curious, Larry – I'm curious, how, how much do you get paid for being on the school board? And he, it said, he said, oh, it's something like $2,000 a year. And this was a number of years ago. And I'm thinking, huh, so every time you go to do some finance or something, you've got to disclose that you've got millions of dollars of lawsuits that have been filed at you, and they're paying you all of $2,000 a year. And he said to me, he said, yeah, but I've got kids in the school district. I, I, said, I don't do this for the money. I do it because I, I want to make it a difference. And I, I always respected that and appreciated it and thought he was crazy, but that's, but that's not the less. So that's what I think the, these jobs are. If you're just tuning in, out in Madison, you have a number of members of the city council. It's a part-time gig. They make $15,000 a year. It's, it, but again, it's this part-time gig. At least some of them are demanding they want to more than double their pay. They want to take it from little under 15000 to almost $38,000 a year because they're saying, well, we're supposed to work for 20 hours a week and you know we're not getting a living wage by doing this. I would say if that's why these people want to be on the city council, that in and of itself is a reason for not having them on the city council. Let's start with Mike on the east side. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Joe. Hi, Mike. Well, you're just you just brought up uh, pretty much what I was going to say. With Go ahead. You there? Not, uh, they were not paid. These were civic uh, services that business owners, uh, uh, rich people, so forth, did as a civic duty to their community. Mm-hmm. And uh, the pay, in many cases, there was none. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was was so minimal. It was just so that well, here you go. Here's a couple dollars for uh, gasoline or or sure. the streetcar or the bus, and uh, you were doing this to help your community. Right now, uh, now this is not supposed to be what well, the origin of it. It's not supposed to be uh, a living wage type of oh. job. It was once again a civic duty. We had that in the city of Milwaukee, um, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago, 15 years ago. The aldermen, basically within four or five years, doubled their pay. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I, I mean, I remember that as a city worker. We were all like, are you kidding me? And we, <laughs> yeah. we get 
we get like no raises. Yeah, and, and we're working. You guys we're, are right, uh, and we're employed. Yeah, yeah we're we're no, no right. Thanks. Yeah, we're we're employed. This is our job. Well, you know, you raise a really good point, Mike. I mean, this is. And I don't want to say it's completely volunteer, but that's what the nature of this is. It, it's should we say, okay, you volunteer to be, you know, your Boy Scout troop leader for your kids? Okay, should you, you know, do you expect to be paid for that? You volunteer to be, you know, the the den mother for Cub Scouts or, or whatever that is. You volunteer to, hey, I'm going to help. Uh, I'm going to help coach my kids' little league baseball team. You don't expect to be compensated for that. And if you are compensated, it's more like a nominal amount to, uh, again, maybe it's going to pay for your gasoline or something. That That's what this quote-unquote job is. These are not intended to be full-time jobs. These are not intended to be family supporting jobs i this the, the story I, I just i let's see let me pull it I, I circled one of the phrases that story in the madison paper that i'm looking at you can't live in madison on 15 dollars an hour even if you're just taking care of yourself well no I, you, you you can't but that's not what these jobs are about these jobs are about you know civic duty and it, it shouldn't be that you know you're going to do this for a for-profit thing now if that's your gig if you want to go into, quote-unquote, public service because you can't make enough money doing other stuff, well, okay, th- that's fine, but then you should be running for, I don't know, you know, one of the jobs that are really full-time jobs, you know, state representatives. I mean, state representatives make 50 grand or so. Your state senators make like 50 grand a year. So the Madison Common Council wants to pay themselves thirty, almost $38,000 a year for this part-time gig. It is this complete disassociation association with reality. Jeff, I just emailed my boss and took the same approach. I asked to more than double my salary. She replied rather quickly and told me to pound sand. I guess good luck to those in Madison. Um, yeah, Jeff, I've been saying this for years. Elections have consequences. The people of Madison keep voting the same people in office, and here are your results. I would never vote for something like this, but again, I don't live in Madison. Well, I think there's an element of this. Jeff, I uh, agree with you. I work part-time job, even though I have my retirement income as well. I don't expect to be paid full-time wages for a part-time job. Jeff, it's like that old saying, Madison, 15 square miles surrounded by reality. Look, I I understand. I mean, if I'm a member of the Common Council and my choice is, gee, do I want to make 14,900 or do I want to make 38,000? Yeah, I'll take the 38,000. But what what a stick in the eye it is for taxpayers and what arrogance that these elected officials think, well, we're we're just we're worth more. Well, no. I mean, if if you want to make more money, then find a job that is not sucking on the taxpayers, you know what, and then then make that money. But this is a part-time civic job that's out there. A lot of the people, I'm sure, go into this hoping to use it as a stepping stone to, you know, start a political career or something like that to run for state assembly or whatever. And if that's your goal, that that's fine. But recognize this is a part-time gig. It shouldn't be a full-time gig. You should not be compensated as if it was a full-time gig. And if that means that there's some people who, I don't know, you know, don't don't run because they're not going to make enough money, well, those are probably the people that shouldn't be on the council to begin with. All right, when it comes to the economy— on a Friday afternoon, we've got good news and we've got bad news. Let's start with the good news. Um, if you have 
If you have been following the stock market, and it has been a rocky year for the stock market, but today, well, today is one of those days where people who just completely got out of it, and the problem with completely getting out of the stock market is, you know, what, what are you going to do with it when you've got inflation that's running at 8%, you, you cash out of the stock market, you take all your money, you put it under a mattress, well, you're losing 8% in value because inflation is so bad. But I understand, believe me, I understand the frustration of looking at your quarterly statements and saying, oh, all this money just disappeared. The problem, though, is, you know, the stock market does go up again. And if you pull your money out, you never know exactly when it's going to go up. Today, the Dow having a big day right now, up 755 points. The NASDAQ is up uh, 2.42%, which translates into 261 points. So it is that, that's the good news. Um, it, it's, and this is the stock market has been up for the last couple weeks. Now it's still not even close to being, you know, back to where it was, you know, a year ago or so, but this is, this is good news. So that's the good news. The bad news, the U S mortgage rates, if you're in the market for like buying a home and a couple years ago, you could, you could have 30 year mortgage with, as Brian Wickard says, all the right stuff. You could have gotten a, a home for less with at a 30 year mortgage for less than 3%. Um, today, the 30-year mortgage just hit 7.08%. That is the highest rate in more than 20 years. Just over a year ago, it was just a little bit over 3%. So it's more than doubled over the course of the last um, year. And this rapid climb, as they dis- this rapid increase is pretty much paralyzed a lot of the housing market because lots of people who might be in the market for a house are now finding that if they have to finance that home, there's a lot less home that they can buy because their monthly payments are going to be a lot greater. So good news, bad news. Good news is stock market up big today. Bad news, mortgage rates continue to climb. So if you're in the house market to either buy or sell your home, sell your home or buy a new home, it's going to be a lot more expensive. During his newscast, Mike was talking to you a little bit about the, the latest thing with, with the swatting incident. This happened, it was a week ago, I think a week ago yesterday. And and you remember the story, at least nine area schools, mostly high schools, but I think there was a middle school as well, received the, these these calls. It appears to be from the same voice that the authorities are now releasing recordings of some of the voices, of, of some of the calls, and it's... I'm, it's it's really hard to hear. I was going to play it for you, but you you, you can find it on, on the internet if you want. It's it's very very hard to hear. It is a, a voice that kind of sounds like it is the cartoon character formerly from the symptom, Simpsons. You know the Apu character. That that's what the voice appears to be. And the, these calls are all very similar, and they're two two minutes in length. And the person is saying, um, "Okay, there's an active shooting situation at such and such school, and there's a gun, and there's people down, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. So when you get this call, the the authorities have to respond. And for example, today's TMJ4 has an interview with the the agent in charge of the FBI in Milwaukee, saying, "Hey, it, when when you hear that this is a, a school shooting, you have to take this seriously." And if you look at the response that that people had, it, it's very clear um, that what's going on here. You know, these departments, as soon as they get the call that there's an active shooter, 
Um, what, what they have to do is, even though they're afraid that this is a hoax call, they still send resources to confirm that there are no active shooters on the scene. This means dozens of officers from multiple different agencies head to the location. And while they suspect that this is a hoax, they suspect it's fake, they, they can't take that chance because at least the authorities would say if they're, if they're wrong, well, you know, you, you know what we're looking at. And, of course, because there are active shooting situations which have happened across the country, you have to treat everyone as if they are serious. On top of that, there is a ripple effect because it's not just the police response. It's not just the first responder response, but also— you, know, you you get this call that comes in that says, we've got an active shooting situation. We think 15 people have been shot. One of the other things you do is you put the hospitals on alert. And this happened a week ago uh, yesterday. You know, the, the hospitals, like the trauma centers, they get the call. And they're said, hey, we, we've gotten a report that there you know, might be an active shooting situation at X school. And what the, the, what the hospitals do, what the emergency rooms do, they stop everything. And they get ready for the worst case scenario. That that's how they do it. They say, "Okay, my God, we we might have you know fifteen you know people being brought here, or twenty people, or thirty people, because it's an active shooting situation." So what they do, and this is what happened throughout the area last Thursday, they they suspend operations. They they say, "Okay, look, we're here. Here's the deal. You were you were scheduled to you know go into surgery at nine o'clock. We've got to put that on on hold because we've got to wait and see what's going to happen because we think that we might be getting ambulances with all sorts of kids that have been shot or or whatever that, that's out there, and and so that's how they have to respond. Now in this case, because there were so many of these that came you know minutes apart through different areas." The word was getting out that these were these hoax calls that were being made. Nevertheless, every one of the schools that got these calls responded according to protocols, and that every police department that got these calls responded according to protocol. Boom, we're sending the cops there. We, we've got to take this seriously. Well, okay, the authorities are now looking to try to find out who did it. I, I don't know if they're going to be able to catch them because, like I say, this— this could have been – it's one of these mechanical sort of recorded voices that are there. It could have come from overseas. It could – I who knows? And, you know, we don't know, and we don't know if they're going to be able to ever fully identify who did it. But we do see what the response was. Now, after looking at this response, I mean, I was getting some texts from people who are saying that there has to be a better way. Given the fact that you have these people out there and we know there's these hoax calls and we know that they're swatting, maybe maybe the authorities shouldn't go to, you know, full five alarm, four alarm fire response when you get these calls. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is a WTMJ talk and text line. I don't know about you, but it seems to me that authorities have to respond in this fashion, that they really don't have any choice. And and even if you suspect that you're getting played, even if you suspect that this is, is a hoax, hey, there was a hoax call that was made to X high school, and there was a hoax call that was made 10 minutes ago to Y high school, and now we're getting one to Z high school— that doesn't mean that you can't that you cannot respond to Z High School because Z High School might be the one where there really is an active shooter, and if you delay a little bit, that could just make matters worse. It's really you know damned if you do and damned if you don't. But from an authority's perspective, and that's why these calls, at least in my opinion, are so insidious uh, because 
Authorities have no choice but to respond and to respond in a big way. Our number, 855-616-1620, which is the WTMJ talk and text line. I have no criticism at all of the way local law enforcement, local first responders handled these calls last week. I think the whoever is responsible for them, whether it's an individual or a group, is despicable. And I would hope that the FBI is using all their resources to try to identify who they are and, if possible, bring them to justice. I say if, if possible because if these calls are coming from Latvia, they're, they're probably outside the jurisdiction. But if they're coming from, like, Franklin, Wisconsin, that's a whole different story. So that's why I think this is a big deal. You need to get the bottom of it. But moving forward— would you have law enforcement do something different? 855-616-1620. That's a WTMJ talk and text line. And I honestly don't know what that would be because, like I say, you, you get two hoax calls in 10 minutes, then you get another one that comes in. You might think it's a hoax call, but how how can you take that chance? 855-616-1620. We discuss in a moment. 855 um, again, I, I just th- this the people anybody that would do this. There's a special spot, and you know where for them. And and part of the problem is it's so difficult nowadays to track this stuff down. And all these different swatting instances. It, it appears it's the same sort of like metallic computerized voice that is being used, and it's kind of tough to hear. But it was actually so that tells me it was the same person or the same group that hit all these places. But. Law enforcement, I don't think they had any choice but to respond as they did. 855-616-1620. Jeff, I'm proud of our first responders, and yes, I think they need to respond. I think putting an armed security officers in the school with direct communications to police um, or fire is a must. Well, I'm I'm a big believer in that. Jeff, instead of 87,000 new IRS agents, why can't we relieve ill-equipped English majors and put law enforcement within immediate reach of school Entrances. My wife teaches, and I've learned that security procedures at schools are taught with seminars and conferences. Most teachers aren't defensive-minded and don't recognize threats until they're told that a threat exists. By the time they recognize the danger, it's often too late. Security only works as well as it is operated. Um, Jeff, seconds matter in a real shooter situation, so authorities must not delay when they get notified of one. But when these reports are false, an investigation may make every effort to identify and prosecute the offenders. Yeah, I agree completely. I mean, you just, you, you can't assume this. And, you know, somebody was, one of our texters was saying, well, okay, maybe you could have the system where you call the school principal. Well, Okay, but here's the problem with that. Okay, so I I went to Nicolet High School in Glendale. It's a big, sprawling campus. I can easily see a situation where something happens that the principal isn't aware of that. If the principal is in one end of of the campus and you've got a a shooting situation that breaks out in the far other end of of the campus and and all of a sudden, you know, somebody is making the call. Now, thankfully, these, these were fakes. But if there is that real situation, and it might take a few minutes for the principal to, to know whether it's real or, or not, and, and those few minutes can make all the difference. And that's why, that's why unfortunately, the, the people who do the swatting and stuff have, have the rest of us at, at a disadvantage because you have to take it seriously, don't you? Um, Aaron in Greendale. Aaron, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. 
Good afternoon, Jeff. I work for uh, a local fire department here in the Milwaukee area, and I'm also a member of the um, TEMS unit that stands for Tactical EMS Response. Mm-hmm. We were, we're paramedics and EMTs that work with the police department in active shooter situations. Right. I just recently attended a, a conference here in Wisconsin, and one of the biggest takeaways that I took was that in an active shooter, active shooter scenario, every 15 seconds, the shooter engages a an innocent person yeah. every 15 seconds. So how yeah. long would we delay calling a principal or yeah. doing all these other things when 15 seconds, everyone's shot? Yeah, I know. I, I agree. I mean, you just, you have, you, you have to take it seriously. It's gotta be frustrating though, Aaron, when you, you have this and you have this in, incredible diversion of resources all because this is somebody's idea of fun or, or whatever by calling these things in. Oh, absolutely. It's demoralizing for the, for the first responders to put ourselves in these situations then just to find out, okay, we've diverted all these resources, mm-hmm. not to mention all of the calls that we have for service that are basically yeah. in triage mode. Yeah. You know, they just go to the back burner, but we still have to address those calls. It's just really resource depleting. I, I really hope they get these guys. Yeah, well, you know, that's a that's a great point because I'm I'm right. You're talking about the triage sort of thing. I'm, I'm imagining if you you know you you have your regular schedule of stuff, or, or you've gotten a call that you know somebody's in distress or whatever, and they're on the list, and now all of a sudden there's an active shooter situation, and, and you have to ma- manage this. Okay, do we do we go to do we go to the, to the house of the, the person who's fallen down or whatever? Do we go to the active shooting situation? There's, there's just a limited amount of resources that, that are out there, and you've got to try to figure out, okay, where do we go in these cases, and where do we go there first? Right, and with every public service right now, we're yeah. ultimately trying to do more with less, and when these situations happen, that makes it virtually impossible. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I'm, I'm with you. Thanks, call. I mean, I, I, I don't know— I, I don't know if the FBI can catch the person or persons responsible. Uh, again, it now, if you listen to the calls that are out there, it's it's the same sort of metallic, computerized voice. It, it's heavily accented. Um, but, I mean, at, I don't know if it's a person or it could be computer-generated. You, you don't know that sort of stuff. But it does appear that this was a—and I guess it, that's not— it's no surprise when you have this many calls that are made. This was a coordinated. This was a coordinated effort to try to create these different disruptions, and and it did. Uh, when we were talking about this, whatever day it happened, like a week ago Thursday, if you were listening to the segment. I had a, a lady call in who it, it was just like the worst morning of her life because what happens is her her grandkids were at school, and it was one of the schools where they evacuated because of the active shooter stuff. Her kids, the, the grandchildren's parents, they were at work, so the kids couldn't get a hold of them. So she gets this call saying, uh, Grandma, um, I, I need somebody to come pick me up. There's, they're, they're, they say there's a shooter here, and we're on the streets, and they're going to cancel school or whatever. So you know, she's appropriately you know, freaked out as she's dropping everything to run and try to get the grandkids and stuff like that. Plus, you know that, that all the kids that went through this— one way or another, this is if, if if this happened to your high school, this is going to be one of the things that sticks with you, you know, during your entire high school experience because it's a traumatic thing when you get these reports that were evacuating because there's reports that maybe there had been a gunman there. This is a very very big deal, but I'm I'm not going to be critical at all of the way law enforcement and first responders respond, and unfortunately, we are held hostage 
by these creeps that, that do this. And this is the, the same thing that, that happens. This is on a bigger scale, but th- this is the idea of fun nowadays where you'll have people that, I don't know, get upset with somebody else because of something they did on the Internet, and the next thing you know, they're, they're calling the police and saying, oh, there's an active shooting situation at this particular home, and, you know, so-and-so has just, you know, done this, just shot his wife and shot his kids. And, you know, and, of course, it, it's all BS, but the idea is to get the police to respond and hey, let's let's see how much havoc we can cause. If and when they catch the people that are doing this, I'm telling you, if I'm the judge, I'm dropping the hammer on them because this is not a prank. This is dangerous. It is just demoralizing to first responders. Jeff, regarding the active shooter reports, um, from a law enforcement perspective, you have to assume the caller is preparing a diversion from a crime being planned. Resources are being heavily dispatched to the active shooter reports, leaving fewer officers to respond to other crimes in progress. Amen to that. Another reason for the death penalty in Wisconsin. Here's the breaking story. Milwaukee inmate killed um, in Green Bay Correctional Assault. A Milwaukee inmate died after he was assaulted at Green Bay Correctional last Friday. Uh, The Department of Correction officials identified him as Timothy Neighbors. He was taken to the hospital after the assault and later died. Brown County Sheriff's Office is investigating. In the meantime, the other inmate involved was moved to another facility. Department of Correction officials said movement at Green Bay Correctional Institution remains limited during the investigation. Records show Neighbors was a registered sex offender. His most recent conviction was in April 2022 when he pled guilty to second-degree sexual assault of a child under 16. In May, he was sentenced to serve nine years in prison. This, I was actually having this, this conversation with somebody earlier this week. Yeah, you know, you're talking about, like, the death penalty? Yeah, I was. But, but see, here's part of the problem in a state that doesn't have it. I don't, I don't know the inmate that, that killed this guy. I, I don't know what sentence he was serving. But in many cases, what happens is that the people who commit these crimes when they're in prison, they have absolutely nothing to lose. I mean, if you've got somebody, for example, who's already serving a life sentence for murder— and isn't going to be getting out, they've got, they've got nothing to lose. I mean, if they decide that they want to and can figure out how to, I mean, you know that, you know that they're capable of incredible violence. If, you know, if, if you're serving life, you know, what, what, what difference does it make whether you're serving life or you're serving, you know, triple life? And, and that's, that's one of the reasons why it's so difficult, for example, to be a prison guard either, because it, at some point in time, you, you are dealing with the worst of the worst. You're dealing with the, the psychopaths who also, in addition to being a psychopath, realize that they've got nothing to lose. And so if you've got nothing to lose, well, okay, I, I mean, again, I, I don't know what, what the beef was. I don't know what it caused this particular attack, and I don't know, but if— if if you've got people that are in these jail situations, these prison situations, a lot of times it is very, very dangerous people that are serving very, very lengthy sentences. And so the, they act out in this fashion, and there's not a lot the system can do, which is another reason why maybe we should be rethinking the death penalty in this state. When we come back, well, a little bit lighter stuff um, and we're going to talk about inflation, but we're going to talk about it in a much different fashion. The 2 o'clock hour of the Friday show is always a lot of fun. Don't go anywhere. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at the Avenue, it's the Jeff Wagner Show. Now, here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Mike, come back here for a second. Mike, 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 Mike. 
So we were talking, this story about the medical, Milwaukee County Medical Examiner just gets weirder and weirder. It does. And the information we learned today was that Dr. Peterson did not resign, as we were all led to believe. He was actually fired from his post, which is why he hasn't been... Well, I, yeah, and, and I know it's been, it was a kind of a contentious thing because he had been unhappy for a while with staffing levels and, and things like that. So I know it was a sort of contentious thing, but the, the, it, it is bizarre because you had asked me off the air whether I ever had a case where you had trouble finding witnesses. And the answer to that, that is yes, um, because that, that happens all, all the time, especially if cases gets delayed, get delayed. I will say this. I never had trouble finding a government witness, retired or otherwise. That, that's the, the bizarre aspect of this. I mean, you know, I, I, would I have a case where, oh, an FBI agent had worked on it and had retired? Well, yeah, sure. in that case, you but you still you, you reach out and you, you say, I need you to come back in and you give them a subpoena or something like that. But they're almost always cooperating that the, clearly, clearly he is not in the mood to cooperate or to even say I'm not in the mood to cooperate, like it's been like radio silence since he was was ousted, and the prosecution in the court today saying they can't they can't even find him to deliver that subpoena. Right, right yeah, because yeah, if, if he's right, you don't even know that he's ducking the stuff if they don't know where he is, and and of course this is a it's a big look. I I understand if you get fired, you you're or whatever. I understand you might have beefs and all, but if you're a professional. You 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 gotta you you gotta do it because who he, he's he's not hurting the DA per se he's he's not hurting the county what he's doing is he he's hurting the justice system and the victims and things like that because you know in these high profile trials you you've got you know cause of death for example if it's if it's a homicide or whatever cause of death is going to be one of these key elements that you have to prove and from the prosecution's perspective you really only have two choices the person who did the autopsy or I guess in a worst case scenario, you can exhume the body and have somebody else come in and do another autopsy but that that delays this it's just this is a really really weird story yeah and you mentioned the the high profileness of this this, this has to do with the former Milwaukee police officer who's accused of killing a guy in the very early days of the pandemic. So this isn't a, did you see a guy stealing a vacuum cleaner from a Target or something along those lines? This, this has in the medical examiner's case, that's, that's what it's going to be. It's going to be, you know, it's going to be the homicide cases. Now, again, this, this particular one, maybe this is the first one that this is hit, but I, I am sure you have all sorts of murderers (laughs) murderers <laughs> who are, are sitting, you know, um, on high cash bails that they can't make, you know, waiting their trials. And and if you can't find the guy that did the autopsy, you know, you're, you're in a scramble situation, especially since the defense attorneys, and this is not being critical of the defense attorneys, they're, they're doing their job. <clears throat> defense attorneys are going to say, wait a second, you know, we, we, we judge, you know, you, my client's sitting in jail here, you know, we, we demand a trial. We, we got to go to trial. Let's, let's get this going. And if the prosecution doesn't have its witnesses and can't prove its case, that's not my problem. So, you know, these judges are going to have to be dealing with that. Well, and you mentioned we we talk all the time about backlogs in cases and not having enough public defenders and not having enough judges to be able to hear all these cases. Yeah, you would think that this would start to compound upon itself a little bit, and I wouldn't be surprised if a couple more cases get added, you know, kind of to that backlog. I've got a story for you to add to your news account. Just happened. Jerry Lee Lewis, do you know who Jerry Lewis is? I do. Died at the age of 87. Okay. Just passed away. Really? Did he really die this time? Because on Tuesday, we were told, or Wednesday, 
there was a report from TMZ that he had passed away. But Jerry Lee Lewis is one of these serial fake death people, kind of like what Betty White was, where it was like every few months you'd see this pop up, and we were fooled. We were fooled on Wednesday. So you, you killed Jerry Lee Lewis on Wednesday? To make ourselves true. <laughs> I, well, you, you remember, um, it's funny you should mention that, because you remember our, our former colleague John Jagler, now mm-hmm. a state senator, he killed Bob Hope three times. You know, uh, three three separate times they announced that Bob Hope had, had died. You know, um, no, this is well. If it's not true, CNN, New York Times, Variety, NBC. Um, no, I, I think I think he's passed away yeah. uh, today. Here's the uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, the untamable rock and roll pioneer, whose outrageous talent, energy, and ego collided with records like "Whole Lot of Shaking Going On," "Great Balls of Fire." Died this morning at the age of eighty-seven. Yeah, so I think. Um, did you um you know you know he was his cousin was uh, Jimmy Swaggart. I didn't know that. Oh yeah, did you? Oh, did have you ever seen the movie Great Balls of Fire? I have. Dennis, oh, I have actually. Well, that, yes. Right? Yeah. That, no. That's. I mean, yeah. His his cousin was his cousin was Jimmy Swaggart, and they they both grew up playing piano, but in different ways. If you remember his um, he was he was a contender. Everybody thought that he was going to replace Elvis. Back, you know, Elvis got drafted to go into the the army, mm-hmm. and and he was he was going to be like the next Elvis. And then, um, well, it, it kind of all went bad because it turned out that he married his twelve year old cousin. <laughs> That'll do it. When he was still married, do it. <laughs> when he was still married to someone else. <laughs> It was um, the tour was canceled. He was blacklisted from the the radio. Yeah, he was. There, there was a there was a whole lot of stuff going on. Now she might have been thirteen. There was a controversy, but but well, she was his cousin. Uh, in the movie, Winona Ryder played her young Winona, but in he in, in real life she was either twelve or thirteen. It was kind of a little bit unclear about that. And he was married to somebody else. So there's there. there when you un- there's just a lot to unpack. Yeah, I was going to say I don't know if that's <laughs> going to make it into the obit or at least the first few lines of the obit, but I'm sure the uh, the ABC update we get this afternoon will be. Well, yes, he uh, he ended up with um, I think uh, well, I got to look here seven I think seven wives married seven times married seven times. So he divorced the cousin. It I, didn't work out with the cousin. Uh, okay, married seven times. His fourth wife drowned in a swimming pool in 1982 while suing for divorce. His fifth wife, 23 years his junior, died of an apparent drug overdose in 1983. Within a year, he had married Carrie McGarver, then 21. So <laughs> he filed for divorce in 1986, accusing she filed for divorce and accusing him of infidelity. Um, they finally divorced in uh, in 2005. Yeah, seven women, seven different marriages. All right. If we include the cousin. The yeah. Jerry Lee Lewis obit gets a lot darker once you dig into it. Well, it's, no, well, I, well, it's just it's, he, he, he marched to a different drummer, I guess, would be that, that story. But Jerry Lee Lewis, just a, an incredibly talented musician, I saw him in concert once a long, long time ago, and he was just— he he was just a wild man. There's no question about it. It's, it you know, seven wives, including one being your cousin at the age of twelve or thirteen. That would probably indicate those are the things. Yeah, the the wildness on the stage is just the the tip of the iceberg. It was just the tip of the iceberg. Sail on, Jerry Lee Lewis, dead at the age of eighty-seven. You shake my nerves and you rattle my brain. You make me as a man insane. You broke my wind, but a thread. Jerry Lee Lewis, dead at the age of 87. One of our texters said, 
Oh, he, he married his cousin. How old was he at the time? Um, he was 22. She was 13. Um, now, I, I'm not sure that that's a good plan at any time, um, but but this was 1958. And that was, that was, it just didn't go over very well at all. Not that it would at any time. But I'm, gee, what could go wrong with that? You're 22. She's 13. Your cousin's... Hmm. I, I don't know. That's just, it just seems to me that aside from being just incredibly creepy, well, let's just leave it incredibly creepy. All right. Speaking of, of music, I talked about this last week. Taylor Swift, um, she, she dropped her, her new album, came out last week, and it's already moved more than a million copies. When, when she dropped it, I think it was like last Friday, it, it just kind of blew up on Spotify. But interestingly enough, one of the things that they're finding, apparently in the first three days of its release, it moved over 1.2 million units. And, you know, they're, they're tracking this, and it's the, the latest top Billboard album chart. It's going to be the biggest sales week of the year and things like that. But one of the things that they're finding is that one of the things that is driving the sale of this particular album is that – a lot of the fans are buying the vinyl records. Now, now she came out, at, you know, you've got the, 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 there's the streaming and there's the things like that, but she's actually produced the vinyl records as well. And that's one of the things that have been really, you know, people are saying, well, um, you know, traditional copies like digital downloads and vinyl records, and they're talking about how, you know, vinyl records, people are just rushing to buy the vinyl records. Um, nearly 500,000 of her first week units are vinyl records. You know, the old-fashioned, those album things that a lot of us grew up with, which is the biggest week for vinyl sales uh, going back to 1991. You've got to go back 30 years to find a, a week where there were as many vinyl records that were sold. And this, this is Taylor Swift. So her fans are just flocking to the vinyl records. Our number is 855-616-1620. That's a WTMJ talk and text line. Now, I grew up with vinyl records, and we've talked about this before. I, I am I'm fascinated by the, these records and the comeback that they are making. And I'm fascinated that there are half a million people out there who are in a position to buy these records, and they obviously they've got the turntables, they've got the equipment. I mean, I remember back in the day, you'd, you'd have the stereo, and you'd have the turntable, and you'd have the receiver, and you'd have the big speakers, and, you know, you, you'd have all the money that was invested in the, you know, the, the stylus, the, you know, the needle that you'd put on and things like that. So, I mean, I can remember, but I, I kind of always thought that this was going to be, that it had gone away, and it was kind of a niche for audiophiles or for older people who had amassed the huge record collections from back in the 50s and the 60s and maybe the 70s. But but 500,000 vinyl records sold by Taylor Swift. Our number, 855-616-1620. That's a WTMJ talk and text line. All right, let's tee this up. Just one segment. Are vinyl records back? What do you think? We discuss in just a moment. I got Willie Whalen and Woody Guthrie, Jimmy Bobby, I love it, and Bobby Gentry, Jerry Jeff, Bob Dylan, Donnie Fritz, and Dead in the Doors, Patsy Klein, John Prine, and more. I got Jackson Brown, Towns, Van Zandt, Zeppelin, Leonard Skinner, Harry Chapin, got Clark, Van Halen, got Rita, Chris Keith, Sykes, and Country Joe, and he's singing with the fish, you know. I got Emmy Lou, you two, and Arlo, James Taylor, Jimmy Rogers, Hank Williams, Mojo, Nixon, Hendrix, Haggard, and a whole lot more. Sitting on my floor 
That's Todd Snyder. One of my favorite songs, vinyl records. But they're, they're making a comeback. Taylor Swift apparently sold over 500,000 vinyl records in the release of her new album. I, I mean, I'm just, I, I find that to be a staggering number. Is this, is vinyl really making a comeback? Let's start with Chris in Green Lake. Chris, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Thank you. Hey, Jeff. Hi, Chris. I really enjoy your show. Thank you. Um, so I've got an 11-year-old daughter, and so this is how I know these things. But the uh, I, I'm really hoping vinyl makes a comeback because that's what I grew up with, too. Right. Um, but she, uh, you know, Taylor apparently has, this is a marketing thing where she's got four different album covers. Uh, and then the vinyl <laughs> form, if you put them two by two, they form a clock. So I think that that's probably driving some of it. Uh, you know, and it's specifically can't really form a clock out of, you know, digital downloads or anything like that. So, oh, okay. she decided so you, to kind of put up. You, you have to buy four well, of the like, albums to get the clock? It's a, is it the same album? Well, I understand. so. <laughs> yeah. It's a little silly, doesn't it? Well, no I, I'm, no, I don't know silly. I'd say it might be brilliant. <laughs> you know, it might, 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 might be brilliant. So you've got to buy the same record four times to get the different album covers so you form the clock. I love it, actually. Um, That's my well, understanding. I'm, well, I'm nervously awaiting my daughter to ask me. Uh, there, yeah, there you go. No, they, they, well, that's interesting, and, and I mean, the, the, it's a completely different experience. Um, and, and I have to admit, I don't. I mean, I still have some of my old vinyl records, but what I went through is I, I pretty much replaced almost all of them over the years with with CDs, and then you know I downloaded a lot of the CDs into like the iTunes or stuff like that, and now you've got the the downloads and all. Um, you know, Jeff, didn't a bunch of the vinyl sell because of album art? Yeah, I mean, I guess that could be the case. Somebody just sent me a picture of the first Metallica album from 1983. It's going for $200 and up. Jeff, I think part of the phenomenon it, phenomena is a perception that vinyl harks back to simpler times. And, of course, they weren't necessarily. That's, that's true. Let's talk to, um, let's see, Gary. Gary, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Gary. Okay, let's. Am I hitting the right button? Gary, you've got you there? Yeah. Okay, hi, Gary. I'm good here. afternoon. Good. What do you think? Yeah. Uh, good listening to you. Thank you. Um, well, I. My biggest disappointment is I lost a red uh, suitcase uh, record player when I was very young. We had a, a backup sewer problem. <laughs> And uh, so the records, the old yellow ones like the Big Rock, Candy Mountain, and all the mm-hmm. uh, Gene Autry and, and all those good sure. uh, records disappeared. But anyway, um, I still have my 1969 Harmon Carden uh, reel to reel. Okay. And I have the uh, Gerard turntable. Right. That was a big all one. All the records. All the records from back in the day, they were marvelous. And oh. you know what? I have two reels of Men to the Moon on my uh, <laughs> tape recorder. That, that is so very yeah. cool. No, Gary, thanks for the call. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm kind of up against the clock. The um, that, that is so very, very cool. I, I, if my wife is listening to this segment now, I know she's afraid that she's going to say, oh, my gosh, she's going to come home and he's going to want to go out and buy a turntable and he's going to want to go out buy a receiver and speakers, and I have no idea where in the house that that is going to go. But it, it's, it, it is 
I mean, the, the idea was, you know, we, we all grew up with the the, vi- with the the old vinyl records, the 33 and the third records, which were the albums, and then the, the 45s, which were the single with the A side and the B side. And, and for just a lot of us, you know, we ended up replacing them because the CDs were so much more convenient and they didn't get scratched and you didn't have to worry about these things and they were going to last forever. And like I say, it's now gone through different iterations. You know, you got the cassettes because they were portable, the cassette tapes, you could take those out and be around. But now it really does seem like that the vinyl stuff is making a, a big comeback. And maybe part of it is the, maybe part of it is the, you know, the, the album art that's there. Jeff, I still have a collection of vinyl records dating back to my late mom's youth in the 1930s and many from the fifties through the eighties. I still have, uh, and they still have working, you know, audio systems to play them. Um, I'm going to be passing them on to my kids. Well, that's, that's, yeah, Jeff, I um right, that's one of the things. Jeff, I have six large stereos in the house. I'm sure my wife would say I could sell you one. Well, yeah, but but then I'd have to explain to my wife where we were going to put the large stereo systems and I don't have a good answer for that. In any event, vinyl records, well, at least the Taylor Swift vinyl records, they're they appear to be making a comeback. A half a million sold in just the first couple days. It's time now for Jeff Wagner's Pop Culture Corner. Put aside the heavy lifting and call the AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line, 855-616-1620. And now, here is Jeff Wagner. All right. Like the big voice guy says, this is the time we stop talking about politics and we stop talking about crime and we have a little bit of fun going into the weekend. It is Pop Culture Corner. Some weeks we talk about movies, sometimes it's books, sometimes it's food, sometimes it's travel, sometimes it's sports. Uh, today, sometimes it's TV. Today, today, and it kind of follows up to what we were talking about in the last segment, today it's going to be from the world of music. Now, here is the deal. Uh, I was actually in a discussion with somebody Earlier this week, and this is this is what happens if you have dinner with me. You know, we, we get off into sort of some weird tangents. And we were talking about – we ended up talking about the Beatles. And interestingly enough, there's a lot of argument as to what the best Beatles album is. And there are a number of people who think – some people would say, oh, it's the, the White Album. Some people would say well, – somebody was telling me today when I was talking about this with them, you know, let it be – um, L, uh, Sergeant Peppers, which was, of course, a defining sort of thing. But more and more people are starting to say they think the best Beatle album, Beatles album ever was released in 19, October of 1966. It was the Beatles album Revolver that, uh, that had like Taxman on it and Got to Get You Into My Life and Eleanor Rigby and Yellow Submarine, Good Day Sunshine. Um, th- those were some of the songs on that. But, but Revolver, a lot of... Beatles fans think that's the best Beatles album ever. Now I bring this up because today there's a, a new a new box set on the making of Revolver that, that's on the market. And if you're like a heavy duty Beatles fan, you can buy it. It's got you know one of those things where you got the outtakes and stuff like that. But but it, it's rekindling this conversation about what the best Beatles album is. I thought for Pop Culture Corner today we'd expand the conversation. I'm not going to ask you what the best Beatles album is. I am going to ask you what you think the best single album of all time is. 855-616-1620. That is the WTMJ talk and text line. And, of course, as always, Pop Culture Corner is brought to you by our friends at Palermo's Pizza. And um, as part of this, one of our callers, 
not the text line yet, but one of the callers in the exclusive discretion of my producer, Charlie, will win our Palermo's Pizza prize package, which is coupon for two free Palermo's pizzas and uh, a fancy pizza cutter and some other stuff as well, exclusively in the discretion of Charlie. Matter of fact, Palermo's Pizza, they've got this new pizza that's out there, stuffed crust. I'm going to take one home for this afternoon, as a matter of fact. We've got a couple in the refrigerator. Okay, so 855-616-1620. That's a WTMJ talk and text line. If it's not Beatles Revolver, if it's not the White Album, all right, what's the best album of all time? We discuss in just a moment. This is Jeff Wagner's Pop Culture Corner. Now back to Take Your Calls. Here's Jeff Wagner. I love these segments. <laughs> I just do. The best album of all time. Let's start with Jason in Watertown. Jason, you're first. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, you know what? I make a point of jumping in my car and just listening to Jeff Wagner <laughs> pretty much on a daily basis. But the best album ever <laughs> is Brampton Comes Alive. The guitar solos are unbelievable. Are you old enough, Jason, to remember when that album first came out in 1976? I think, or were you were you buying records and stuff back then? Seven four sixty one, my birthday. Yes, sir. I was a teenager, and I taught myself to sing <laughs> to that record. You cannot. You people cannot understand how big that album was. It was the top selling album of nineteen seventy six. Like eighteen eight million copies that were sold, which were huge. And and that was that huge. got airplay. It was just it's incredible how many songs came out of that. And it was it's so disappointing when they you know they they put on do you feel like I do the live version and they cut it up. <laughs> yeah, ab- uh. no, absolutely. No. Thanks to Cotto. Peter Frampton, which is and, and he was a guitarist for Humble Pie and things like that. But he really came out that album. Now he's also one of these guys. If you if you see him now, the years have not necessarily been good to him. But 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 that doesn't change the fact that that was a that that was a. <laughs> that was just a huge, huge album. Let's talk to, let me see, Mary um, in Brookfield. Mary, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Mary, got you. Do I have you there? Mary. Yeah, I'm here. Hi, I'm Mary. Here. Okay. Hi. <laughs> okay, the best album of all time is? Jeff, I'm going to say Michael Jackson Thriller. Well, that was a huge record as well. That was, I mean, that just completely dominated the airwaves when that one came out, too. Yes, and my second choice may be Elton John, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. Uh, yes, yes. Well, I mean, I, I, I mean, I was, boy, those are just kind of different choices. But, <laughs> yeah, you, you, have, you have a diverse mu- set of musical tastes there. I do. It's very diverse. I listen to you all the time. Uh, well, <laughs> Mary, thank you so very much. I appreciate that. And I, I love both those songs. A thriller, um, six studio album by Michael Jackson, uh, huge. Um, it, it debuted in, uh, it, was, it dropped like late 1982, as I recall. And that, that just dominated everything as well. Let's talk to Lisa in Jackson. Lisa, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Am I hitting the wrong numbers here? That might be me doing this. Um, Lisa, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Lisa? Lisa, Lisa. Oh, yes. Hi. Hi, Lisa. Yep, I'm here. Okay, that's good. See, I, we have this new system, and I have, to, I have to hit these different buttons in a different way. I'm still, I'm this old dog trying to learn new tricks, so <laughs> I'm glad you're on the phone. What? Well, I, I think one of the biggest albums was Fleetwood Mac Rumors. Mm-hmm. 
Were you a Fleetwood Mac fan back in the day? Um, yes, when I grew up, my I love music. My parents, I was in high school at the time. Right. So my mom had the album, and we listened to music all the time. Yeah. No, I'm a—I mean, thanks for call. I, I'm a huge fan of, of Rumors. I've told the story before, so I won't go into great detail. But Alpine Valley, I want to say it was like 1979, we—, we Fleetwood Mac had two sold-out shows. They did a third show. We got in early. We got tickets, and we, there were front-row seats. And I, I still remember I was there with my buddy Evan and my buddy Steve and our friend Bonnie, and we were all in the front row, and um, they, they did all the songs on Rumors, and then they played most of their songs from their, their first album. This is the first album with the, the, the band as it, was, as it was configured then with Lindsey Buckingham, Stevie Nicks, et cetera. And it was just, it was just this incredible show. I still... I think it might be the best concert that I've ever been to. And, you know, Rumors is just, it, it's one of these, again, seminal sort of albums. There's there's no question about it. It does, it's just absolutely great. Okay, let's talk to Rob in Green Bay. Rob, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. As everybody has said, they're all those are all great albums. I, I want to preface this by saying I've got about 3,500 albums into my collection, and every time I listen to something, I catch something different and think they're all really good but the one album that really really turns me is dark side of the moon um uh right pink floyd and that's that was it was like as i want to call it was about the the seventh or eighth album and it was early 70s right like 72 73 or something like that as i recall that is correct and it spent oh it spent an ungodly amount of years on in the in the billboard 200 yeah um you know, people are. Are you in general? Are you a, are you a fan of Pink Floyd in general? In general, yes, I am. Yeah, no, I I, I agree. That's that. There's just that's and that's another one of these records. Like I say, we're talking about a record that came out going on fifty years ago, and it, it's still. I think it's still recognized. My guess is they still sell a ton of those today to people who who you know are, are just are just finding out about Pink Floyd and stuff. You, Rob. With a great choice in the discretion of my producer, Charlie, you are the winner of our Palermo's prize package. So you get a coupon for some pizzas and this really cool pizza cutter that I'm trying to figure out how I can get one of and some other stuff as well. So thanks for listening to the show and enjoy it. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. Thanks for having a great show. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. You guys are so very kind. Let's talk to Sherry in Beaver Dam. Sherry, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Is this me? Sherry in Beaver Dam. Hi, Sherry. Hello. Hello. The best album and, um, of all time. Um, Meatloaf's Bad Out of Hell. I was so sorry when he passed away. What was it this year? Or, or I think it was like this year we lost Meatloaf. I, I, I loved, 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 loved Bad Out of Hell. And you know, we were talking earlier about cover art. You, you get that album cover. My guess is it probably cost more to produce the album cover than it probably did to make the record. Yep, <laughs> I would imagine so. What's your favorite song off of Bad Out of Hell? Oh, the um, the one with the um, the baseball in the middle. Oh, of it. Paradise by the Dashboard Light. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, th- thanks for the call. No, that's, that's Paradise by the ba- Dashboard Light. The um, the story about that, if you're not familiar with that song, is. It's it's about a young couple who are getting ready to, you know, have sex in a car or something like that. And and in the middle of it, they use this uh, they use a soundtrack from this Yankees 
baseball broadcast, I think it was Phil Rizzuto, who was apparently extremely unhappy that that was, that was used in, in there and in that conjunction. Okay, let me just see. I, we, we were swamped with uh, stuff on the text line. Let me just get to a couple of those. Super Tramp, Crime of the Century. Jeff, for me, it's Tom Petty's Damn the Torpedoes, just because it brings back a lot of fond memories. That's, I have said this before, that is, see, that's the thing about music, because you hear these songs, and they just, they take you back to a certain time in your life. I, I just, okay, Brandy, the song by Looking Glass, that, I, I don't know if Looking Glass ever did anything else, but whenever I hear the song Brandy, it ta- I remember that summer, I remember where I was, I remember who I was with, it just, it takes me back dramatically. Um, the, the same thing is true with um, Night Moves, that song by Bob Seger, it's just so incredibly evocative. Whenever the song Night Moves come on, I, I just, it takes me back to this particular time in my life, and it brings me back like like it was just absolutely yesterday. A Maggie May by Rod Stewart is is one of those songs as well. Jeff, Toby, um, Toby Keith's um, albums, let's see, Dark Side of the Moon continues to hold the record as the most charted weeks on Billboard. Um, Sticky Fingers by the Rolling Stones. Yeah, I remember that. Carol King Tapestry. If you were in college, as I was in the 1970s, and you wanted to, I, I don't know, you, you wanted to, to meet or see girls or whatever, women at the time, um, you, you, had to, you had to pretend at least to be sensitive. And so every, every woman in college, everybody had, had Carol King's Tapestry. And I actually did like it. I mean, I, there was a lot of great songs on that. That's just a tremendous record. Jeff, uh, for me, it's Van Halen. Um, best album of all time, Billy Joel's Piano Man. That's an excellent song with a lot of great ones. Jeff, Neil Diamond, Hot August Nights. Yeah, I remember that one. That is tremendous. Um, Jeff, I like Kiss Alive, the first one. My brother was a Kiss guy. I just, I never, I never got into Kiss. Jeff, for me, it's My Generation by The Who. Nirvana, Nevermind. Nirvana, Nevermind is a really good one as well. Jeff, The Eagles, Hotel California. You could, um, that that's a good one. You you could argue about a couple other The Eagles songs, uh, Eagles albums too, like maybe um, Desperado. Number of people saying Carol King's Tapestry. Yeah, that was the thing. Um, Peter Frampton, um, that was our first caller that Frampton comes Alive. Let's talk to, let's see, we've got Jeff in Appleton. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. Love your show. Thank you. Um, the other one I told your producer was Nights and White Satin by the Moody Blues. Moody Blues, yeah. A combination of orchestra and rock. And, I mean, they did shows where that was the only songs they played was that album. Yeah. Uh, just a unique combination very unique album. No, it, it was. I and it um um <laughs> I, I can't believe we have these things. Can you talk about how it brings back memories of specific times? My high school prom, Nicolay High School. The prom, the theme of the prom, and they were like the Nicolay Knights. It was Knights in White Satin. So I can't, I cannot hear that song by the Moody Blues without thinking. You know, going back to to prom, Jeff, Exile on Main Street by the Rolling Stones, that's a perfect album. Exile on Main Street is my favorite Stones album. There's no question about it. Uh, Jeff, Rumors by Fleetwood Mac, Late for the Sky by Jackson Brown. That's, 
I'm trying to think if that was his first or the second one, but that's one of the early ones like that. Number of people are seconding the the whole Pete, uh, the Pink Floyd, the uh, the whole Pink Floyd uh, Dark Side of the Moon record. Super Tramp, Crime of the Century. Yeah, we had to get to this. A couple people are also texting in and saying Springsteen's Born to Run. I, I would agree. Born to Run is my favorite Springsteen album, bar none. Okay, so here, here's what I try to do to, to give you something fun to do over this weekend. And this is your assignment, and we will collect the assignments on Monday's program. Um, just sometime this weekend, it's going to be a nice weekend, and I understand there's all the political ads, and I understand there's sports and that stuff. But do yourself a favor. Think for a couple minutes. Hey, that guy on the radio was talking about in the favorite albums of all time. I Mine is probably whatever it is. I haven't listened to it in a while. You know, I'm going to pull it out. I'm going to put it on the record player and put in the CD. I'm going to go to my iTunes or whatever. Do yourself a favor. Take that trip down memory lane. Fire up your favorite album and just sit back and relax and enjoy it, whether it's Rumors or Thriller or Bad Out of Hell or Sticky Fingers or Exile on Main Street or Jimmy Buffett's A1A. Enjoy yourself, and we'll talk to you on Monday.